Now, one of the messages President Putin might have been trying to send was that he could go nuclear using tactical nuclear warheads. All the missiles that he's been using can take nuclear warheads. If he went, if he did that again, what should America, what should NATO, what should the West do? Well, I think one thing that's important before we get to that stage is to increase our efforts to deter him from thinking about it. Putin has bluffed about the use of nuclear weapons before. Uh, every indication so far is that the current talk is also a bluff. Uh, but I don't rule out the possibility of nuclear weapons if Russian forces in Ukraine collapsed or if Putin found himself in really dire straits politically inside Russia. Uh, and we need to make it clear to him and we need to make it clear to the people around him in his government uh, so that they can take action before he does anything like that. But we need to make clear if Putin were to order the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, he would be signing a suicide note. Uh, and I think uh, I think that's what it may take to deter him if he gets into extreme circumstances. He'd be signing a suicide note. Why? Because we cannot allow uh, the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine or anywhere else from terrorists like Iran uh, or North Korea, as well as from Russia or China, without the person who uh, was responsible for that decision uh, being held accountable. Uh, there are a lot of proposals for destruction of Russian forces inside Ukraine, the Black Sea Fleet and the like, if Russia were, were to use a nuclear weapon. I, I don't have any objection to that. They're the ones who invaded Ukraine. But they weren't. They would not have been responsible for ordering the use of the nuclear weapon. And I think by making it clear, we will levy responsibility on the person who makes that order. Mm -hmm. That increases the chance of deterring that person from doing it in the first place. But without being silly about this, we can't reach him. We can't get him. Well, I don't I don't agree that we can't get him. Uh, and I think he knows that you can ask Qasem Soleimani in Iran uh, what happens uh, when we decide ah. that somebody is a threat to the United States. But the point here is not just for Putin, but for everybody else to say uh, this is the wrong road to go down. It, it's uh, look, the basic NATO failure in this war to date is not deterring the Russians on February the 24th. We could have done a lot more before that. We need to up our game in the world of deterrence. Sure. I think we've forgotten a lot since the Cold War. That's for sure. But to be clear, you're saying that if he did this, if he unlaunched launched nuclear weapons on Ukraine, America could kill him, could take him out, assassinate him. I, I don't think it would necessarily happen the next day, but but I think the point is to make it clear to Putin that this is not a free decision on his part. We know who would be responsible for the use of nuclear weapons. We know it would be him, and he will be held accountable. Get a rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. When you get the blues, get a rock and roll feeling in your bones. Put taps on your toes. Get gone, get a rhythm. All right, what is happening in Ukraine is going to wind up hitting us here at home. Make no mistake about that. It matters not only to our democratic ideals abroad, but to our homeland security. Ukrainian forces have taken back ground that Putin thought he was going to hold. So now he is upping threats of nuclear response and playing a game with annexation. Now, this is something 
that actually is a, a very dangerous piece of trickery. I spent time on the Ukrainian front lines uh, at the end of June. It's amazing how American their ambitions are and their appetite to be free of an oppressor. It's much like our fight against England was many years ago. Their fight may well become our own if the hostilities don't end in Ukraine and soon. So the questions, are we doing enough? How long do we have to decide? And what does this nuclear talk mean in terms of our decisions? We have the right guest to break this down tonight. Former Clinton Defense Secretary William Cohen and former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both uh, for being on the show tonight. Secretary, I start with you. Uh, this talk of annexation uh, is more dangerous uh, than people may realize. Um, what do we have to look out for in this proposition that if they annex it, then that means if Ukraine enters it, that they are directly attacking Russia. How dangerous is that as a proposition? Well, first, Chris, let me uh, congratulate you on your show. Thank you. Uh, and wish you the best going forward. I missed you in the past, and um, I'm glad that uh, you're, you're back on the air, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's dangerous because uh, Putin, number one, doesn't believe in the law. Uh, we can say it's illegal what he's done, it'll never be recognized, but Putin doesn't care whether we recognize it or not. He cares about seizing it by power and then threatening you with a retaliation that will make it unacceptable for the West to confront. So it's more about power than law, and he believes he has possession, that's nine-tenths of the law, uh, and what we have to do is make sure that we do whatever we can to help uh, the Ukrainians to take back more land as fast as they can. Because as we're moving into the winter months, the more land they can get back, the harder it's going to be for him uh, to uh, move forward uh, sometime in the spring. The danger is that uh, he may be tempted as he's losing uh, land uh, that he doesn't really, shouldn't have. As he loses that, he becomes weaker. When he becomes weaker, the danger is the probability of him turning to nuclear weapons goes up. So that's the, uh, the danger we're in now, and everybody should recognize. I don't think he's bluffing. I think we'd have to take him seriously, and what we have to do is deter him as best we can, but then respond in a fashion that makes it unacceptable for him in the future. Um, we can talk about that, but there are multiple plans uh, that have to be considered. Well, but uh, no matter what the plan is, it's, it's about how big the commitment is from the United States, um, both in terms of more equipment and whether there'll be boots on the ground. I know that you're aware of the reports that uh, there is tactical help uh, from the United States, both at home here and on the ground there. But do you believe that the United States needs to do more uh, before this becomes a new move for the Soviet Union? Well, I have to... Uh continue to do what we're doing, uh, put the pedal to the metal, get everything we can there. Uh, all of the he's requesting in terms of uh, high Mars, the highly mobile artillery systems that can reach into uh, the, uh, the Russian forces, uh, getting more drone capability, armed drones, uh, and, uh, and every weapon we can that will take out the Russian soldiers and send as many back, uh, either wounded uh, or dead. Zelensky uh, says it's not enough. Mr. Pardon? Secretary, as you know, President Zelensky says it's not enough, that well, he needs a lot more, more equipment. He's getting more. Well, we have a package just been approved. Uh, we've contributed about $13 billion uh, so far and more coming. Uh, it's not enough, but I think uh, he needs more artillery 
uh, to go with the HIMARS launchers. It needs many more artillery shells to go with it to keep that pressure on. But uh, I think we're giving him enough. We're seeing what he's doing. He's taking back land faster than they were able to to really get it in the first place. Right. So I, I think we're helping in a way that is still very calibrated to make sure that we're not taking NATO into the war directly if we can at all avoid it. It might become necessary down the line, depending if uh, Putin were to try to use nuclear weapons. I think at this point we're calibrating it just about right in terms of keeping us supplying him, doing the fighting, and us providing the money and the technology and the training and intelligence. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us, especially on the first night. I look forward to having you soon. Great to be with you, Chris. All right. Former Secretary um, William Cohen. Now I want to go to John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor uh, for former President Trump. It's good to see you again. John, thank you for being on the show on this first night. Appreciate you. Well, congratulations on coming back on and uh, glad to see you. So you heard uh, what the former secretary had to say. Do you agree with his assessment? Well, I think it's uh, generally I agree with it. I do think we're moving potentially into a very dangerous period here with a lot of upside but a lot of risk. The, the recent Ukrainian advances, literally just in, in the past few days in particular, uh, really underscore the Russian army has not recuperated. It's not regained its footing. I have to say over the past seven months of this war, every time I think the Russians have hit a bottom in terms of their performance, they surprise me and it gets worse. So this is the point when uh, I think the Putin threat of a possible use of nuclear weapons does become real, when the army may be on the verge of collapse because of Putin's purported annexation of former four Crimean provinces. Uh, Russian territory itself is threatened in his view. And what that really does is threaten Putin's regime domestically in Russia, which is what he is most worried about. So I think we need to make it clear to Putin that uh, if he did use a nuclear weapon, not only would there be severe consequences for the Russian military, there would be severe consequences for him. But what does that mean, John? Because I, I just I, I want you to kind of make that more understandable, um, you know, for the audience. You know, the current NSA, a national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, last week um, said the United States will, quote, respond decisively uh, to any nuclear weapon and said that the U.S. has spelled out in greater detail exactly what that would mean in top level talks with Senate senior Russian officials. Well, it certainly hasn't quieted them down. You know, what could you do? other than an exchange of nuclear weapons, which nobody would want? Well, I think uh, we should say publicly that if Putin did authorize the use of a nuclear weapon, he would be signing his own suicide note. And I think that needs to be clear publicly so that everybody in the Russian military, intelligence, domestic security uh, conglomerate knows how much is at risk here. This is a very serious step, and as I say, we all know where that decision would come from, and he should bear the ultimate responsibility. He needs to know that. There shouldn't be any ambiguity on the point. But do you think that he believes, and do you believe, that the United States has the uh, ability to reach out and touch Putin in that way? I, th I think we can. I think we've demonstrated we've got that ability in uh, giving Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force, an early exit. Uh, and we can find Putin as well. Uh, th this is something that uh, the, the use of a nuclear weapon here, the first time in war since 1945, this is a huge step. 
And if Putin can execute uh, that maneuver and get away with it by staying in power, it is a terrible signal to Iran, to North Korea, to China. Uh, so I do think it's uh, worth considering exactly how we're going to try and deter Putin from doing it. Let's face it, the fact this war began on February the 24th means the West failed. We failed to deter Putin from invading. We failed to deter him in 2014 as well. So these failures of deterrence in his mind, I'm afraid, are giving him the wrong message. Mm. Now the question is what resolve will we have politically um, to make the right choices going forward so it doesn't get worse. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you so much. Appreciate you, especially on the first night. I'll see you again soon. Very glad to do it. All right. So there you have it. Two people from the left and the right, um, very much on the same page. The question is, will our current leaders do the right thing? This is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. Land of hope and glory. Vera Lynn, land of hope and glory. There is a new prime minister to nominated in the land of hope and glory to meet the new king in the land of hope and glory in these next hours. We're speaking of Rishi Sunak, former chancellor of the Exchequer, former disappointed candidate for the prime ministership, now the agreed upon conservative choice to be the new PM, to meet the new king, King Charles, and to be offered the role of the premiership. John Bolton, the former national security advisor, former ambassador to the United Nations, is here to comment on Rishi Sunak and the apparent effort of the United Kingdom to unite in one direction. John, a very good evening to you. The European Union is another story. NATO is another story. Do you take heart that the conservatives have found a leader so quickly after discarding two leaders? Well, uh, good evening. I think uh, it was pretty clear to a lot of conservatives that they either got their act together this time or uh, they, they could uh, kiss it goodbye in the next election, whenever that might be, any chance of winning. Now, they don't have to call a vote until 2024, but they're facing demands already to do so. I think they'll resist that. But uh, the argument that this third prime minister since the last election lacks legitimacy is something we'll hear again and again. So uh, even though Boris Johnson tried to make a comeback, even though Penny Bordot, who came in third right behind Sunak uh, just a few weeks ago uh, in the re race to replace Johnson, they both tried, but it was clear that uh, Sunak's original support was holding firm. And many uh, party leaders, uh, elders, if you will, like Ian Duncan Smith, a former conservative party leader, said, if we don't uh, stick together and unite and stop the backstabbing, uh, we're, we're in very tough shape. So they have acted quickly. They've met that first part of the test. Whether they can stay united, we'll see. I note that uh, William Hague, former foreign minister and a conservative leader, speaks very well of Rishi Sunak. Does that recommend him, John? Because he represents the same district in Yorkshire that Mr. Hague represented for many decades. Yeah, I think uh, Haig is one of those party elders, but but uh, plenty of people who were uh, in, in the in the thick of the fight for the replacement uh, of Boris Johnson, who did not support Sunak, have have now come out very strongly in his favor. Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, and, and and others. So uh, I think that uh, again, it remains to be tested. There are still many Boris Johnson people who think he was badly used by the party when, when he was brought down as party leader. Uh, and and certainly, like uh, the United States and, and Europe as a whole, 
Britain faces a lot of problems, a coming recession, inflation still too high. So Sunak has his work cut out for him. This is not going to be an easy job. The European Union, uh, you quickly note in your most recent observation that there is disorder in all the capitals we think of as the European Union. Certainly in Rome, forming a new government under Giorgio Maloney. Certainly in Berlin, where the chancellor is in, uh, at odds with his Green Party. I, I'll put it diplomatically about nuclear power. Certainly in France, where Mr. Macron has had to use unusual skills uh, to put through his budget. And I think he's disputing with Mr. Herr, Chan- Herr Chancellor Schultz about subsidizing uh, the people for the to get through the difficult winter. So the European Union is in disorder. Is this a result of the Ukraine of the of the war, John, or is it a byproduct of the war? I, I don't know. All of a sudden, all the capitals are not stable. Well, I think the, the war in Ukraine has certainly brought a lot of differences to the fore. It's shown the complete bankruptcy of EU energy policy to have, uh, at the same time, they were becoming dependent on Russian oil and gas, were eliminating their nuclear power, certainly in Germany, not, not in France in the case of nuclear. But, but now the chickens are coming home to roost. What we saw is the Liz Trust government in London was collapsing, a, a lot of back padding by European commentators saying, well, we, we don't have those problems, do we? But but in fact, uh, Britain is actually doing, uh, in many respects, better. Its performance on the war in Ukraine has been better than the Europeans. Uh, and I think now a lot of the weaknesses within the European Union, exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, are, are going to loom. And, and uh, we'll, we'll see who meets this test. I wouldn't, I wouldn't count the Brits out, that's for sure. Uh, let us look closely at Ukraine right now. The NATO effort to pour weapons in has stemmed the bleeding, at least in, in the first seven or eight months. But what what is next is puzzling, John, because the Russian forces continue to mention weapons of mass destruction and are now making war on the energy grid, pushing electricity, uh, pu- pushing uh, blackouts and a lack of fresh water on millions of people. Where is this right now, John, in your measure? Are we getting ready for winter or is Russia getting ready to use something unacceptable in the battlefield? Now, I think uh, what Putin is looking to do now is to try and win in the political and diplomatic worlds what his military is clearly not winning on the battlefield. In fact, uh, recent steps like evacuating civilians from the southern city of Kherson uh, may indicate Russia is going to withdraw from Kherson rather than contest it. Now, that sounds pretty bad and it is a setback. But remember, they will be withdrawing to the other side of the Dnieper River, which is a very convenient defensive line and, in effect, boundary between what Russia controls and what Ukrainian forces may get. And I think what Putin wants to do is stalemate the battlefield for the winter, press on the energy front, press on the front of Uh, the beleaguered Western European governments and say, in effect, come on, let's find a way to turn the page on this and go back to business as usual, hoping that enough European governments, perhaps France, perhaps Germany, will fall for that line and uh, he'll at least save some face in Ukraine. We are watching a Washington holding its breath until the midterm election. What do you expect after the midterms, John? Do you expect a change of course from the the Biden administration or continuing to pour weapons into the conflict? No, I think uh, I think Biden will continue the the policy that he's been pursuing, which which has not been 
uh, adequate, obviously. I mean, we, we have had fantastic success with American weapons systems uh, in the hands of Ukrainian forces. It's, it's great testing under battlefield conditions, but it's, uh, it's obviously still not enough. And uh, I personally do not think that uh, that if Republicans get control, that there will be any diminution in Republican support uh, for the Ukrainians. There may be some new members of Congress who are not supporters, but I think the party will remain uh, overwhelmingly behind them. So I don't I don't see any real political pressure on Biden to change. Eighty years ago, it was Europe first. That was the two war campaign by FDR. Uh, right now, we're faced with similar choices, given the belligerence in Beijing. Is the emphasis in Washington still on Europe first? Well, I think there are different people who are, who, who take the situation in, uh, in East Asia uh, from a different perspective. I think we should be very worried about Chinese belligerence there. Anybody who watched the just concluded 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress could see uh, a very assertive, very aggressive China on display. Uh, and if I were in Taiwan, I would continue to be uh, quite worried. And it does fall to the United States in Asia uh, to be Taiwan's leading defender. So uh, the idea that somehow or another we're going to find a way to talk to Xi Jinping's regime about climate change uh, really needs to be put behind us sooner rather than later. And we need to face up uh, to the threat that China is posing right now, most eminently on Taiwan, but far more broadly as well. And we're on the eve of a new prime minister for the Conservative Party, Rishi Sunak, to meet the king. John, what do you look for from Sunak? Boris Johnson was twice in Ukraine. Liz Truss was adamant at supporting Ukraine. Do you recommend that Mr. Sunak get himself to Kiev as soon as possible? Well, I think that uh, there's every reason to think in, in terms of Ukraine policy that he will carry along those lines. There was no indication under Boris Johnson that Rishi Sunak had any second thoughts. Ben Wallace, uh, to all appearances, will remain as defense secretary. Uh, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, deputy to Liz Truss, uh, undoubtedly will remain. So I think the team is basically all still pointed in the right direction. And that's important because in many respects, London has been more forward-leaning, more steadfast in its support for Ukraine than the Biden administration. John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, former Ambassador to the United Nations. There is a new premier. Congratulations. I'm John Batchelor. The idea that you can just move in and take over places because there might be some conflict there just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any more sense than if Southern California um, suddenly had a bunch of Mexican separatists there that wanted to break that away and have them join Mexico. The rest of the world wouldn't say, well, United States, you just have to kind of cede your sovereignty there and allow some of your states to break away and join Mexico. Of course not. We would hold on to that land because it's our sovereign territory. And since 1991, Ukraine has had distinct borders that have been recognized by not only the rest of the world, but Russia itself and no amount of separatist movements, especially ones that are funded by Russia, allow them to... To, to break away and just join Russia. And then the, the reason why I don't like to go back historically is because when people want to go back historically, they only go, go back so far. You know, you hear Putin and you hear all these other people talk about, well, you know, the people in the East, you know, they, they feel Russian, they speak Russian, they've got a lot of Russian ethnic roots. Yeah, of course, that's because during events like the Holodomor, millions of Ukrainians were forcibly starved to death, their wheat was requisitioned, and people that were trying to flee towns were shot and murdered by Soviet troops. So after millions of people die and hundreds of thousands of Russians, ethnic Russians are shipped in, which 
which Russia, which the Soviet Union did to all of their uh, little republics that they had gotten as part of the Soviet Union, to, to go back into the past and then to come forward into the future and say, well, look, there's a lot of ethnic Russians there now, to say that a prior genocide can supersede the sovereign borders drawn around a country in 1991, and then we go forward to 2020 and say, well, look, there's a lot of ethnic Russians there. That's just absolutely bizarre to me. I think that when we frame the conversation, I think we have to stop saying, well, Russia's worried about this, so they should be able to invade, or Russia likes this, so they should be able to take that. Let's look at it from the Ukraine perspective. They have a country that was recognized internationally with borders since 1991. What right does Russia or any other country have to come in and steal territory from them? I haven't heard a single justification for that. It is very important to understand that I personally respect and believe that until we find out what really happened, who's the right and the true leader, and the country can heal itself and find a way to unite itself, there is no true defense of which side is right or wrong. And while I do believe that Russia is incorrect in trying to actually push further, especially outside the self-declared independent regions, the U.S. is escalating the war. And like I mentioned, the U.K. UK Secretary of Defense said that we are using American-made and U.K.-made weapons now to launch artillery and javelin and stinger missiles across borders into the Russian mainland, which is the high escalation of international warfare and shows that there is conflict beyond just protecting the sovereignty of Ukraine. In 1991, Ukraine declared itself an independent republic from the Soviet Union. Nothing has changed. There is no reason to expect that any of these borders should be erased. There's no reason to expect that any sort of internal revolution, internal struggle, internal disagreement between the people would somehow erase the Ukrainian borders that the entire world had recognized. In 2014, Putin upset that his guy had to flee the country after ordering his secret police to fire upon and kill protesters. Just because he was so mad that his guy got ousted, Ukraine decided to look west for their economic future instead of east towards Russian enslavement doesn't give him the right to move into that country and steal property like they did in Crimea, and it doesn't give them the right to militarily fund and support violent separatist movements in the east just to keep the country in a state of perpetual conflict so that they could never resolve their security disputes, so that they could never have a path forward to the EU, or so that they could never have a path forward towards NATO. A lot of people like to talk about hypothetical security concerns that Russia has, about hypothetical invasions from hypothetical armies and hypothetical future. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Like, the reality is, is that Ukraine has a very real security security concern. They don't have hypothetical concerns. They have an actual Russian army that has already stolen territory from them that continues to send active military personnel into the east of the country and now through the rest of the country to try to invade them. And I think that when we look at this issue, I think that we should look at it from a Ukrainian perspective and ask, what do the Ukrainian people have a right to do? The 2014 election, the interim government that happened after, and the actual elections that followed that aren't contested. Even the people in Ukraine don't contest these elections. They might want to have autonomous regions in the east like they did in Crimea for a long time, which they did under the Ukrainian government. They still have their own autonomous region, that, but that doesn't mean that they believe that those elections were rigged. Zelensky ha has enjoyed like some of the most popular support of any Ukrainian prime minister in the history of Ukraine. The idea that these elections are somehow widespread contested like, is just not true. And even if they were, we contest elections in, in different parts of the world, but that doesn't mean that we send people in to invade these countries because we don't like the outcome of some of the elections. You know, we'll condemn them, we'll uh, tariff them, we'll uh, embargo them or whatever we do, but it doesn't mean that we have a right to go in and, and invade anything, although it seems like you agree with that regardless. Um, yeah. The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh 
So Alex is now in bankruptcy. The First Amendment is in jeopardy because opinions are protected in every state in the union except Connecticut, where they wrote an Alex Jones rule retroactively because they demonized him. The judges are popularly elected. There was a crest of popular opinion condemning Alex and sympathizing with the parents. And now he's confronted with one appeal left, which is the Supreme Court of the United States, which hopefully will do the right thing and say, you can say anything you want. The leading case is very interesting. It's called Brandenburg. It's a 1969 unanimous opinion. And Mr. Brandenburg, who was a Ku Klux Klan leader in Ohio, called for killing Jews and blacks, killing. And he used very, very negative references to them, words that I wouldn't use. And he was convicted all the way in the Ohio court system and upheld by the Ohio Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed it and said, these are matters of opinion. He can say whatever he wants. All innocuous speech is absolutely protected and all speech is innocuous when there is time for more speech to challenge it and rebut it. And the whole purpose of the First Amendment is to keep the government the hell out of the business of speech. Totally disregarded by the Connecticut courts when they decided to write their Alex Jones rule. Now, what should we all do? Well, Alex never went to Connecticut. Alex gave a broadcast from Texas. I do my work from New Jersey. Joe Rogan does his work from Texas. But because it reached people in Connecticut... The Connecticut courts claim jurisdiction over him. This is very, very dangerous. And what happened to Alex could happen to anybody. It could happen to somebody on the left. And there's very, very few people making the case for Alex's freedom of speech. Very few. It was absolutely stunning that they lost this case. And what happened in the courtroom was stunning because John Durham, the prosecutor, found that his own FBI agents testifying in behalf of the government for him were not being truthful on the stand. And he proceeded to impeach the integrity of his own witnesses. This is the second time this happened in a Durham case with the FBI. The FBI admitted that they lie under oath, that they lie to people they're interrogating, that they lie to each other, and that they lie to their bosses, to senior management. Whereupon juries are thinking to themselves, well, why should we believe what these guys are saying on the witness stand? Is there any question that the FBI has now become politicized? There's no question in my mind that it's become politicized. There's no question in my mind as to whether it's constitutional. It's not. The Constitution doesn't authorize a federal police department, whether you want to call it FBI or whatever. It's totally out of control. And when the Republicans take the House of Representatives next month, I hope that they put Chris Ray's feet to the fire and compel him to answer and justify, attempt to justify, I don't know how we could possibly justify, what the FBI's been getting away with. government gives out a lot of money, billions a year, to universities for research. Amongst the 1.1 million, a very small amount, given the billions they give away, but still, it's a million bucks, that the government gave to Boston University was an experiment that the researchers at Boston apparently never told the government they were going to participate in. 
Now, I'm not in favor of the government giving this money away. This should be done through private enterprise or through universities raising the money by demonstrating to their donors the value of this real estate. But that's not the world we live in today. In return for taking that money, the universities agree to abide by the government standards, but they also agree to spend the money for the purposes for which it was given. Stated differently, the universities agree to tell the government what they are doing with the money the government gives them, your money, and they're not supposed to engage in experiments without doing that. Okay, you get the background. Boston University researchers, it was just revealed by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. You even know what the National Institutes of Health is? Is it the CDC? Is it the FDA? No, it's another one of those administrative agencies. It's not in the legislative branch. It's not in the executive branch. Congress gives it money. It's not answerable. It's not transparent. It spends its money however it wants, as you'll see in a minute. The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, not the crowd in Atlanta, not the CDC, not the FDA in D.C., but some other amorphous semi-secret administrative agency wasting your money, gave a million one to Boston University for experiments, and Boston University researchers created another strain of COVID. What? Yes, another strain of COVID. And they experimented on this COVID against mice. Somehow they had human DNA in the Petri dishes as well. The COVID killed the mice. It did not eradicate the human DNA. It is beyond me how a university can take federal funds and not comply with the contract? Or did the NIH not even state in the contract what Boston University researchers were supposed to do? The NIH is spending other people's money, your money. Does it not care what researchers do with that money? Why in the name of God do we need scientists creating something that doesn't already exist in nature like another strain of COVID? Okay. You get my anger, you get my frustration, you get what the government's doing with your money, you get what the government's doing with your health. The most I can do, my dear friends, is to tell you about it. More as we get it. It's just all right.